Once again, I'd like to request your kindly attention for some thoughts on on our practice, on the teachings of the Buddha and the translation of these teachings into our lives, which which is what I sense I um, I spend most of my time on, uh, primarily into my life and uh, in accompanying other beings and practitioners on their differing paths of awakening. So let me start off with the story tonight. The story is the story of the gesture that you see the Buddha behind me, the Buddha statue behind me doing. This uh, gesture is famous yeah. In Thailand, this gesture is called Buddha Jinaracha, the victorious king. And for the much of the Indological world, this gesture is called the earth-touching gesture. You see that the Buddha touches with his fingers the earth. Uh, to be precise, he's not yet a Buddha when he does that. Uh, this is a big story, and um, you know, Buddhist uh, the Buddhist life crystallizes in a few key moments, and uh, things speed up. The plot thickens as the Buddha goes up to thirty-five, and he hasn't really much to show. At that time, he he cannot have felt like a success. He has given up much. Prince Siddhartha was privileged, and his going forth happened, depending on which story you believe, there is one story, which is the famous one, that is deep down and in some of the late Theravada commentaries, uh, which says that he left his wife and his newborn child at night and stole stole himself away with the help of a, a, a dedicated friend, a charioteer who later became um, a monk and found awakening too. So that's the famous story which uh, describes the Buddha at the age of 29 going forth, leaving his family life and his um, career as a son of a governor and seeking the forests, seeking the wilds. There's another story, at least as authentic as this one, when it comes to age. And in that story, um, the Buddha doesn't have a child. In fact, he goes and visits his wife that night, and his wife conceives a child in that very night uh, by an activity that is called, he pays attention to her. <laughs> In that story, it is said that his concern was that his going forth would basically deprive his parents of a grandchild. 
And um, that's a very touching story. It's way too long for you to be listening to me telling you this, but it basically consists of his wife then waking up beside him in that night and having a, a series of dreams, you know, very ominous dreams. And he comforts her um, and says these dreams are not accurate, you know, and yet still he leaves in the morning. And then the, the next six years basically is a parallel version. So his ascetic practices, his seeking for awakening is paralleled by her having a six-year pregnancy. Um, <laughs> And uh, this is a really, um, you, you have to think in this, uh, this is in mythological terms, this is not obstetrics here, yeah? So. <laughs> so you have to give some leeway to this. And um, in this story, the Buddha is only half of the story. The other half of the awakening program is held by his wife, who mirrors his ascetic practices. When he stops eating, she stops eating and almost loses his, her child and so forth. And basically the culmination is the birth of their son and his awakening. Yeah? So in this story, his part is only half of the awakening process. I found it a fascinating story. It's in the Mula Sarvastavada Vinaya, which uh, is a little later than the Pali Vinaya, but it's on par with the source where the Pali gets the story from the Buddha's leaving home. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, this is a lot less famous than the story uh, that has made it into the sort of Western Theravada circles. But I wanted to go to the other piece, to the earth touching. That comes in a little later. So after his ascetic practices, basically he uh, realizes that this is not working. He has some success. He is offered several schools by his teachers. One school, uh, he is offered co-teaching. and the other school, he is actually offered leadership. He declines on both cases. And then he sets out with his five last companions who are fellow ascetics who really uh, put their chips on him. And he disappoints. He doesn't deliver. You know, at one point he decides that asceticism doesn't cut it anymore and he famously accepts milk rice from a, from a, from a cowgirl, basically. Yeah, so cowherder girl named Sujata offering him savory milk rice and then his companions turn away in disgust and say, you know, the, the ascetic Gautama has given up the practice and uh, eats rice now and hangs out with cowgirls. <laughs> And then they leave him, and at that moment he's alone. And this can't have felt great. He's 35, and he's at the end of his rope. He doesn't know what to do anymore. He has mortified his body. He wasn't nice to his dog. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's done all kinds of unappetizing practices, and this has only led him to the conclusion that this is not a path that leads to freedom. And then he is saved by the memory of a childhood experience, lying in the shadow of a rose apple tree and having his first absorption experience. And there he is, 35, uh, thinking back 29 years uh, to a memory he ha of an experience he had as a child. We don't know 
we assume it's a Brahminical ceremony, his father creating a furrow. Somebody puts the little kid uh, for uh, rest into the shadow of a small rose apple tree. And uh, there he has uh, a first Jhanic experience, almost coincidental. And um, that is the memory that resurfaces. And he ponders whether this state of mind, a peaceful, blissful state of mind, uh, obtained not by strenuous effort, but by seclusion from sensory pleasure and by ease. Whether such a state could be the beginning of the process of liberation he seeks. And then his awakening night begins. Now, you know, things happen. Mara, the corrupter of all beings, Mara, the evil one, senses that something is on. Mara is a, a, a complex figure. Uh, one, one of his jobs is making sure that practitioners stay in the sense realm. You know, amongst, among his many duties, Mara is also a, a god, a deity, and that deity is overruling the Kama Loka. Yeah. And anybody, the, the world of, of sensuality, but also the, the sensory world, yeah. we're all inhabiting this sensory world. And whenever a practitioner reaches liberation or reaches d- differing stages of liberation, he goes to the periphery of that Kama Loka. And Mara gets nervous because his jurisdiction only goes as far as the Kama Loka. You know, as soon as practitioners have uh, experiences that uh, transcend the Kama Loka, the, re- the realm of the five senses or the six senses, then basically he is... Um, he has nothing to say anymore. He loses these people. So he's not keen on losing people. So Mara turns up. The Buddha is there and has made his famous determination that he will not rise un- unless he has uh, broken through, to, uh, has had his existential breakthrough experience. And then Mara really gears up. First of all, he addresses the, the Siddhartha Gautama in stanzas and say, apparently compassionately, and say, you look really tired. You know, you've done a hard job. Wouldn't it be slowly time that you kind of knocked off for today? Yeah? <laughs> so, <clears throat> okay, that's not quite literal translation, but you're getting the gist. He's playing, he's playing compassion, but then just basically wanting to stop the Buddha from his exercise. And uh, that doesn't quite work. And then he rolls out his armies, you know, ten armies of Mara. You know. Often depicted, you see monsters, whole gear of you know, military, military equipment, uh, demonic faces, and then generally you see a serene Buddha, so a mandorla-type shape. And while all the javelins and the arrows piercing his mandorla turn into flowers, depicting that the Buddha is unassailable. He cannot be uh, unseated uh, from his position of equanimous abiding. And finally, uh, Mara turns his daughters loose on on, on Siddhartha uh, uh, to seduce him. That doesn't really work. And then, you know, Mara reaches for the last arrow. And the last arrow is basically, he goes up and says, look, I am here with my whole retinue. 
I belong onto that vatra, on that diamond seat you are sitting on. I have many witnesses here to testify the, um, the legitimacy of my claim. You, know? you should leave this place and leave me to sit in that place. Who do you have to testify for you? you know? This is one huge fantasy you're engaging in, Siddhartha. One huge fantasy. All this stuff, you're leaving home, all your struggle from freedom, all your ascetic practices, all your project of liberation, nothing but be one big self-aggrandizing fantasy. Yeah. Who do you have to testify for you? You're alone here. Yeah. This is just one huge fantasy you're propagating. And you make yourself to be the grandiose hero of your own fantasy. This is all a figment of your highfalutin mind. And at that stage, Siddhartha touches the earth and calls the earth as a witness. Now it's interesting to see at that moment, you know, up till then he is kind of unassailable, but he remains besieged. He is not free. The whale, the the male warrior ascetic uh, is unassailable, but he is not a freed being. He's not free. And at, at the moment where he touches the earth, and the earth obviously is the, personi- the personified feminine yeah? in all traditions. This is completely understood. Early Buddhism that is so poor um, in feminine iconography. Yeah? It takes, takes a thousand years for Buddhism to produce awakened being in the female form. A thousand years it takes. The women literally creep in from the sides of the imagery. If you look at Buddhist iconography, the beginning they're just sort of decorations, holding flowers and things, and then it takes a thousand years where a fully-breasted female is in the pose of an awakened Tathagata. Yeah, and you see Prajnaparamita statues. That's the first time that occurs. So Buddhists take, although they have nuns and they have awakened nuns right from the beginning, and they have a great appreciation of female practitioners. You know, right from the beginning, actually, the Buddhist world still struggles a bit with the placement of the female. Yeah. So, but all of these traditions completely have understood that when the Buddha calls the earth for witness, he calls the female. Yeah. That female has different names. In the Pali, it's called Shtavara, the, um, the constant one. In other country, traditions, in, in Thailand particularly, she's called Metorani. Dharaniya means the great bearer, yeah? the one who bears. Yeah? So this earth then gives signs. And depending on which Buddhist tradition you follow, this earth gives signs. So, sometimes it just quakes, it trembles, yeah? and shows by its quaking that it testifies for the Buddha. In other um, in other traditions, we have actually the earth opening up and a beautiful woman coming out and testifies for the Buddha. By 12th century uh, Thailand, you have uh, the beautiful woman having long black hair, which she rings, and out of her hair that she rings, floods flush away Mara's ten armies. So uh, all the traditions have understood that the, whale, the, the male warrior ascetic does not t- do the job on his own. He can't succeed. He can be heroic, he can be courageous, he can be uh, full of valor, but he remains basically a prisoner. 
unassailable but imprisoned. And it's only when the female comes upon uh, the stage, upon the scene, that he actually finds liberation. Only when the earth testifies for the Buddha and says, yes, I am witness that in countless lives you have practiced your perfections. I have borne you, I have held you, I have witnessed your struggles, I have witnessed your path and your practice, and I stand and witness that you are the legitimate uh, inhabitant of that seat, the Vatra seat under the bow tree, under the tree of awakening. And at that moment, things look really bad for Mara, and he and his team uh, recede. Uh, They don't quite go away. They keep on the outlook, and uh, they're fairly timeless. So uh, practitioners in all time have probably had encounters with Mara and his hordes. But this story here is about that the most accomplished of practitioners, the most heroic of practitioners, the most, the great renunciant, the most privileged of meditators can't do it on his own. He has to touch his earth. And I think that's this gesture. For me, this is the most powerful gestures. I like many Buddha statues. I find um, many of them inspiring. Uh, This gesture here has always touched me as the, at a one on one side as a very confident gesture yes i am righteously here and yes i can't do it on my own i have humbly to call upon support yeah. so how do we touch our earth now the didactic part okay <laughs> how do we touch our earth This is a big question. What are our tools to touch the earth? What, are our, what is our magic? What is our everyday magic? Um, sometimes we need help, isn't it? When Sariputta, the great Sariputta, died... Um, the language, the story in the Pali is, is poignantly short and poignantly brittle. But in that story, it says the novice Chunda sees that his teacher, Sariputta, the great uh, disciple of the Buddha, is ailing, getting sicker and sicker, and finally dies. He perishes of an illness. It's just a novice and Sariputta. They're on their own. And the novice is somewhat disconcerted and takes, you know, the bowl and robe of Sariputta and goes and seeks out Ananda and tells um, Sariputta has reached awakening, has has reached um, Parinibbana. uh, And Ananda decides that this is important. And they need to go and see the Buddha. So that's what they do. Then they go to the Buddha. Ananda bedraggled and the novice equally bedraggled. And they approach the Buddha and tell him. Ananda says, Chunda, Venerable Sir, says that the Venerable Sariputta has attained final Nibbana. And this is his bowl and robe. 
Venerable Sir, since I heard that Sariputta has attained final Dibbana, my body seems as if it has been drugged. Yeah. I have become disoriented. The teachings are no longer clear to me. Yeah. Ananda is confused. He is experiencing a powerful somatic impact of sudden grief. He is under shock, yeah, we would say today. And then the Buddha helps him to touch earth. He says, why, Ananda, when Sariputta attained final Dibbana, did he take away your aggregate of virtue? Did he take away your unification of mind? Did he take away your wisdom? Did he take away your aggregate of liberation or your aggregate of knowledge and vision of that liberation? And Ananda says, no, he did not. No, sir, he did not. But for me, Venerable Sariputta was an advisor and counsellor, one who instructed, exhorted and inspired, and he gladdened me. He was unwearying in teaching the Dharma. He was helpful to his brothers in the holy life. We recollect the nourishment of the Dhamma, the wealth of the Dhamma, the help of the Dhamma given by the Venerable Sariputta. So the Buddha tells him, Ananda, you are not deprived of, the, of your realization. And yet, Ananda insists, look, I have lost something. There is something that has changed. I am no longer uh, with somebody who has been an immense, has had an immense role in, me, in my life. Yeah? And then the Buddha continues and says, look, um, but have I not declared, Ananda, what must be parted, separated and severed from all who are dear and agreeable to us? Ananda, is it to be obtained here? May what is born come to be conditioned and subject to disintegration not disintegrate? That is impossible. So, on one hand, he is didactic and tells him, look, uh, this was to be foreseen. On the other hand, and this is a poignant image that comes now, it says, it is just as if the largest branch would break off a great tree standing possessed of heartwood. Yeah. The Sangha, so too Ananda, in the great Bhikkhu Sangha standing possessed of heartwood, Sariputta has attained final Nibbana. So Ananda is, her, is, is, is learning here from the Buddha that the Buddha himself sees his community as a great, great tree. Yeah. And yet that tree has lost its most beautiful branch. Yeah. And I find that poignant, this double image. On one hand, yes, you know, Sariputta was a human being. He was a freed human being, but a human being nevertheless. He, it was clear that he would grow old, he would grow sick, and he would die. And yet, yes, it is true, you're right, Ananda, we have lost something, not just you have lost something, but we as a community have lost basically our most beautiful branch in the tree. Yeah. Our tree will never be the same. Yeah. I find that double truth very powerful. And yet Ananda is being helped by this. He's being helped both by the acknowledgement of a timeless truth, impermanence, and yet he's also helped by the validation and the acknowledgement. You're correct in your loss. You're correct in your sense of grief. You're correct in your disorientation. Look, we, we will not be the same after that. This is going to change. It will not stop the teaching, but it will change our, our world. Yeah? There is somebody who has gone. 
that was in many ways irreplaceable, that was unique. Yeah. We can't replace it, not even with another arahat. Yeah. There is something deeply particular and there is something deeply universal in the same way. Now that gesture here, that gesture of touching the earth, in many ways does the same. It says there's something universal, timeless, ahistorical. The capacity for freedom, realization, awakening. This is a kind of vertical sort of axis. And that has become embodied by a particular human being at a particular time, in a particular place, surrounded by particular people and their culture. So, something timeless, ahistorical, transcendent, becomes embodied in a human, in a particular, specific human being that has characteristics that are unmistakable, that has an expression of his realization that is highly individual, and um, that double truth, the universal, the timeless, the ahistorical, and its manifestation and embodiment in a specific human being that lives in a particular time with a particular group of people and has an expression of that transcendent and timeless truth in the shape and form of his culture, his mind, his behavior. That's magic. Something in that is magic. And kind of touching this. We're all basking still in this. We're still basking in this. You know, we're all sailing in the paramitas of the Buddha, the ones the earth has testified. We're still moving in the I forgot what this is called, the first wave of a ship. Yeah? That big wave a ship makes. I don't know what it is called in English, but in that wave, we are still moving. And our movement is of greater ease because we have somebody who created that wave in whose, in whose wake we can glide. You know, the Pali is brittle, it's dry, it doesn't do a lot of epic, yeah? It's all little snippets, but in these snippets, if you read them and save them carefully, you see quite haunting acknowledgements of the humanity, of these men and women who have practiced, who have been touched by something big, and yet who lived in many ways ordinary lives, who had hearts and feelings and emotions. The five khandhas... Yeah. Don't go away, yeah. even for awakened beings. What goes away is the craving and the grasping. The clinging goes away in the five khandhas. The khandhas don't go away. You don't turn into a three khanda arahat. Yeah. Yeah. We keep running on five cylinders. Yeah. What goes away is the grasping and the clinging, the attachment, the identification. That is what makes up the liberation. So... The question is then, you know, how, how to go from there? What is, what is practically helpful? How do I touch the earth? How do I keep touching the earth? Because it's obvious, um, for the Buddha, this was one dramatic moment, but I need to keep touching the earth. Yeah? I need to keep doing 
Chris's whole food version of rain, you know, <laughs> grain. I need to keep doing grain. You know? And touching the earth obviously begins with this grounding business. So how do I touch the earth? One way of touching the earth for me, and this is a, a powerful teaching that comes from early Buddhism, and it's probably nowhere as strong as in early Buddhism, is something called Yoniso Manasikara, the appropriate attention or wise attention sometimes translated. Um, Manasikara means application of mind. Yeah? Manas and karoti, making mind, applying mind, or just paying attention to be very simple. Yoniso is an interesting term. Yoni is the womb, yeah? the female womb. More precisely, it's the uterus. Yeah? And from its literal meaning, it has received its figurative meaning. That's the place of origin. Yeah? So we have such words in, in Western languages. The Latin word matrix does the same job. Yeah? There was a thing called matrix before there was a movie, okay? <laughs> In fact, before there were three movies, or, or <laughs> four. Yeah. So that where things originate from is the figurative meaning of yoni. Yoni so is then the ablative. So we have paying attention from where things take their origin. Yeah? You could go one step further and say, let's call this radical attention from radix, from the root. Yeah? Paying radical attention. So, this yoni somanasikara is a is a very interesting thing. It um, it comes up in in many different ways. We are um, we are taught that yoni somanasikara is one of the two sources for appropriate understanding for samaditi. So, for the first of the factors of the eightfold path, yoni somanasikara is one of the two entryways. The other one is noble friendship, Kalyanamitata. No, that's not true. I'm mistaking something. The other one is hearing the teaching of others. Yeah. Kalyanamitata comes in in another important list about which I will not say anything more. <laughs> so, what we can hear from others, Paratagoso, as the source of understanding, of appropriate understanding, and reflecting our, on our own experience in appropriate ways. Now, there is a magic teaching. Yeah? What is the liberative power in introspective exercise is not a divine revelation. It's not a gracious God that looks after me. It's not magic. But it is this mind using its own faculties and honing and developing and cultivating its own faculties to appropriately attend to the personal experience. And in that personal experience, we gain insight into the workings of the mind. And by doing so, we are capable of liberating ourselves from that which hinders the workings of this mind, that which is an impediment for the workings of the mind, that which corrupts this mind from true understanding and genuine relationship. Now, I find that very empowering. Yeah. And it wasn't the reason New Age teaching. It's two and a half thousand years ago saying, turn inward and learn to use the skills your mind already has in seed quality. And by developing these skills, 
appropriately, you will bear, this will bear great fruit. You will understand what frees you. You will understand what obstructs your uh, life. And by cultivating that which you discern with this faculty of wise attention as wholesome, with that you can grow. Yeah? With that you can free yourself. I find that still very inspiring. Yeah? Now the magic thing is Yoniso Manasikara is not some lofty, highly meditative state. It is something we're all capable of. Yeah? We're all capable of slowing down becoming more, scrutinize something, examine something, investigate something. I like the English word fathoming. Yeah? It's a little out of fashion, I admit. But, you know, it was used to basically check how much water you had under your keel. So you had a weight and a, uh, a piece of string, and the guy for in, in the bow would drop that weight and see how deep the water underneath the keel was. So you would fathom the ground. So fathoming the ground is uh, one way in my life that I that helps me touch the earth, um, and that helps me connect with the greatest degree of reality this being and this mind is capable of holding. Yoni Somanasikara is described in in a number of ways. Also, its negative is mentioned in a number of ways. Ayoni Somanasikara gives rise to all bad stuff. Yeah. Hindrances, uh, the, the, great intoxic, the great intoxications or the great inflations uh, with uh, sensuality, with views, uh, with uh, confusion around values, and basically with forms of Interpretation, yeah. becoming the obsession with future, you know, the obsession with planning, the leaning into the future. You know. Those are the big forms of inflation that Ah Yoniso Manasikara gives rise to. And conversely, Yoniso Manasikara is the beginning, <laughs> the beginning of appropriate understanding and it's also the main motor of the development of wisdom yeah so if we practice with appropriate understanding this yoniso manasikara then our chances to grow are greatly accelerated yeah so the culture of that yoniso manasikara takes a remarkably high place let me think how one one way we could do that the 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 commentaries give us a clue. One, uh, they say there's two kinds of yonisomanasikara. One is kind of developing the right manner of something, going on the right track. In other words, identifying things that are worth paying attention to. Yeah. Remember, attention finite, and many people out there wanting our attention because they know when they get our attention, they sooner or later get our money. Okay. <laughs> So finding the right track for our attention is very, very useful. And the other, even more useful thing is developing Yonisomanasikara and finding the right skill in means. In other words, finding savvy, finding tricks, finding practical means. You know. These are not ultimate truth, 
These are not absolutely universal statements, but these are practical skills that help me doing something, that help me managing something, that help me training in something. Practical skills. So uh, one such skill is simply asking questions. I would like to give you some examples of such such questions. It's, It's sometimes useful to just ask questions. And let's say something like the four noble tasks. Yeah. So, what would be questions be? I am capable of highest happiness. Yeah. What exactly stops me from experiencing this right now? <laughs> yeah. Very simple question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. If this little gray number here can be completely happy, completely free, and completely awake, why doesn't it do it right now? What? Let's be specific. You know, what stops me from doing this right now? Yeah. And you find dukkha. Yeah. This is, yeah. That's not the explanation. That's just the name of the problem. Okay? The explanation has yet to be found in your own heart. Yeah? But that's what the Buddha means with dukkha. So if we want to use Yonisamanasikara along the paradigm of, say, uh, those Aryasachas, the four truths, then why don't we ask a few very harmless childlike questions, you know, like, what stops me right now from complete happiness? If you take a moment, you probably find one or two things. We can continue this. (laughs) Whatever I may, whatever it may be, what does it depend on? What expectations, value judgments, demands and longings is it founded upon? What expectations, value judgments, demands and longings is it founded upon? This will take us to Samudaya. This is taking us to the arising of suffering. The next question would be, can I change this? Do I want to change this? <laughs> yeah? Some things I don't want to change. Yeah? If I'm honest. Can I let go? Some things I don't want to let go. I know it's not good. Uh, I know this is not what the teaching says. I know it's not working. (laughs) And yet, you know, if I'm honest, there's things that this heart doesn't want to let go. Full stop. The sober truth is, um, I'm better off if I know that than if I don't know that. (laughs) I'm going to pay the price anyway. (laughs) Yeah. It's very clear where the box stops. So I better know where this heart refuses to let go. Yeah, I am much. It's much easier to to take responsibility and pay the price for not letting go, which will come in the form of dukkha. When you have made that choice consciously, I feel a lot less helpless. Yes, believe me. Take me on trust on this one. If you felt you had no choice, you will be a lot more indignant, you will be a lot more distraught, you will be a lot more lost and confused. If you knew you had a choice and you made the choice, it's much easier to to pay the price. Yeah. It's much easier to own up and take responsibility and say, yeah, something in me knew this wasn't quite. Yeah. The last one, so this takes us to Niroda, obviously, to... Um, to the cessation of suffering. How shall I live? 
How do I not want to live? What, in the face of my understanding and my challenges, really helps? What inner attitude, what outer mode of living creates self-respect and generates in others and myself what I have recognized as wholesome? Whereby do I experience happiness and fullness? Yeah. These would be questions of wise investigation. When I was in Thailand, I lived um, not with, but in the wake of a man who has had, like many of the Thai masters, the gift of saying complex things in very simple terms. And I have never lived with that man, but I have read his books. These were some of the first books I read when, I f my, when my Thai was good enough to read such things. And he had a beautiful way of placing something similar. He... Uh, this is his type of Yoni Somanasikara when he comes to the four uh, ennobling tasks. His version goes, his name is Lungpudun, and his version goes, the mind that goes out in order to satisfy its impulses is the condition for suffering. The result that comes from the mind going out is suffering. The mind seeing the mind is the path the result of the mind seeing the mind is the cessation of suffering. Yeah. You notice he turns the sequence of the four ennobling tasks. Yeah. Instead of having suffering at the beginning, we are having samudaya, the seeking pattern of the mind at the beginning. Yeah. So let me read that again. The mind that goes out in order to satisfy its impulses is the condition for suffering, samudaya. The result that comes from the mind going out is suffering, dukkha. The mind seeing the mind is the path. This is magga. Yeah? The result of the mind seeing the mind is the cessation of suffering. That's Niroda, the third of those truths. Yeah? I find it beautifully uh, nailed it. Yeah? The changing the sequence of those four statements uh, outlines... Uh, an act of yoniso manasikara, yoniso of wise attention. Yeah? And if we place, if we see it that way, it becomes much more easy to, to connect our own suffering with our own actions, isn't it? That's the crucial piece. The teaching of dukkha asks us to connect the experience of dukkha with, the, uh, with behavior and with action and with... Uh, mental focus, attentional focus. Yeah. Because it does connect our experience with our actions, we then get empowered to change these actions, to review these actions, to make more wise choices. So I find it very beautiful. So if all goes well, if all goes well, um, we begin to contemplate. One such contemplation I find also as uh, one of the tools that helps me touching my earth is a contemplation that has not received a famous name. Uh, it doesn't really occur very much in the lists. It's, um, it's a contemplation that would be well worth having more fame. Um, that contemplation 
occurs actually quite a number of places, but for some reason it has never been anthologized, it has never been given a famous name, and it isn't really commented upon very much. But the contemplation is very simple. Let me read you an example of it. This is from a small discourse called The Discourse on the Stream Enterer. It's buried in the um, Sotapati Samyutta, in the Connected Discourses. The locus dramatis is Savati, where the Buddha spent many, many years. And it's very short. The, monk, the Buddha addresses his monks and says, Practitioners, there are these five groups of clinging. What five? Uh, the body group of clinging, the feeling tone group of clinging, the perception group of clinging, the mental formation group of clinging, the sense consciousness group of clinging. And when practitioners, the Aryan disciple, understands as they really are, the arising, now you have to listen, the arising, samudaya, the passing, atangama, the attractiveness, asada, and the danger, adinava, and then deliverance from the five groups of clinging is possible. He then is called an Aryan disciple who is a stream winner, not liable to states of woe, assured of final awakening. So, let's look. We have five pieces in here. And those four first pieces are the crucial type of Yoni Somanasikara. This is Yoni Somanasikara in action. So you have anything that happens in your life, whether you like it or whether you don't like it, doesn't really matter. You Acknowledge it is arising. A, that it arises, and B, how it arises. Yeah? Very, very useful. That it arises means it's not solid. It's not permanent. Anything that arises hasn't been there before. Okay. Once you've established that as a fact, you investigate, okay, what are the conditions under which it arises? Yeah? You begin to establish your own power to influence the conditions that lead to its arising by studying the, n the manner of its arising. How does this arise? What is its worst? When is it weakest? Samudaya is familiar. This is the second noble truth. But here it means generally arising. So we are taught that one of the great contemplations for things is contemplating ari the arising nature of something. That it arises and how it arises. And there's... As the next one, this is a somewhat less famous term. The word is atangama. It means it's used for the going down of the sun. Yeah? But it means basically, okay, that thing which has arisen now also disappears. Yeah? Let us acknowledge that it does so. And what are the conditions which make it disappear? Yeah? Very useful if it's something you don't like. <laughs> and um, obviously... Uh, if you find this is wholesome and worthy, then you may want to cultivate conditions that lead to its strengthening rather than to its disappearance. Yeah? But often, by stuff we want to get rid of, we have to acknowledge that they disappear. And now the next two contemplations are even more fascinating. The things arise and cease we have in many, many instances in Buddhist teaching. Yeah? We, have, we, we have heard it in teaching on the Satipatthana or on mindfulness. Anapanasati Sutta does the same. But then things continue. Uh, there is actually word of attractiveness, of enjoyment, of um, this is the kick, this is the payback, yeah? the asada, this is the payback. Sadiati means to enjoy. Um, it means to consume. In, uh, and that 
we should contemplate what actually we get out of a thing. Yeah? What is the payoff of a particular pattern we have? What is, uh, even with negative things, you know, does that actually, this is the heretical question, is that useful for something? I complain about it, I want to get rid of it, but let's be honest, you know, does it actually have a payoff? Am I not secretly benefiting from it somehow? You know? If I am sick, this is nice, but then somebody may look after me. Yeah? I don't like being sick, but I definitely like being looked <laughs> after. Yeah? So I may actually have a secret payoff from me being ill. Yeah? We all know that. Yeah? There is a clinical terms for this. So, but uh, We are here encouraged to apply Yoni Somana Sikara and acknowledge the degree of attractiveness, the degree of enjoyment, degree of payoff we get from a thing that we may deem to be something we would like to not be with us. Or that something that is very attractive, you know, sometimes it's easy to say, oh yes, yeah, very attractive thing, Um, that's a very clear payoff, it makes me feel good, Um, you know, I feel empowered, uh, it's healthy, I I love it, Uh, I sense competence, you know, all the all the projects from from the other day, you know, autonomy, um, competency, belonging, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very clear benefit, yeah. And now the next contemplation comes. Okay, what is the price I pay? What is the danger in this thing? What is what is the price tag? Yeah. What is the drawback of this? What is the adinava, the danger, as the suttas call? And the teaching goes, basically, if I'm, and only if I'm doing, holding these things up, arising and disappearance, the advantage, enjoyment, the gratification in a thing, and the danger and the the drawback in the thing, only then will my heart begin to let go. Only then, if it sees that actually the disadvantages are bigger than what I get, only then will this heart let go and seek Number five, that is the, the path to deliverance, yeah? nisarana, the, the flight route, yeah? the exit. Only then. This is really spirit, spiritually very, very pragmatic, isn't it? I cannot browbeat my heart into letting go. I cannot reason my heart into letting go. I cannot force my heart into letting go. I can only hold up to this heart and say, look, look, you've been clinging Look, you've been clinging so long to something that if you're honest, is producing more pain than it produces you good. Yeah. And only if the heart listens, it is seeking deliverance. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I find that very, very inspiring. You know, it's sober, it's it's not magic, and yet it gives me tools. This is something that touch, helped me touch my earth. Yeah. There is a vision, and that vision is also connected with a, a wonderful magic term, and I would like to end with this. This is a vision that this heart is capable of an abiding that does not make the world a thing, that does not concoct the world into reification into solidity. It does not make 
of you a thing. It does not make of the phenomena of my experience a thing. It does not create a world that is grasped at. Okay. And this abiding, if we look out, it means we are not going to grasp, we're not going to reify, we're not going to make this world a solid, desirable or loath loathsome thing we grasp at. And this abiding also uh, is a place where I do not identify. Internally, I am not identifying. This term is very fascinating. It's an old, very old, it's a Vedic term. And it basically goes back to, it's called Atamaya, or more clearly Atamayata. I am so fond of it that I named my center in Cologne after this. The term is a Vedic term and it says, it basically says, Tamaya means made of this. And the, uh, the Vedic image is that the hand that grasps something completely takes the shape of what it grasps. Okay? So it be the the uh, the old image is that if I focus my mind on Brahman, then my mind will become Brahman. Yeah, that's the basic principle. And the Buddha finds fault with that principle and says it doesn't work like that. Mind and its objects are always separate. Yeah, the objects of mind are not part of the mind itself. The objects of mind are coming and going. Yeah, the capacity that can know the objects of mind and the objects are separate. However much you mix them up, it's like a glass of water and sand. If you mix it up, it can look like an, a mixture. You can make an emulsion of milk, um, of some, some fat and some other uh, watery substance. And after a while, it'll separate. Yeah? It may look mixed for a while, but if you let it, it'll separate. It'll separate out. So the Buddha's vision is Thing, the mind does not become the things it uh, engages with. It may pay, pick up the mood from those things, but it doesn't actually become them. It doesn't become identical. In other words, the mind is capable of getting a perspective on these objects. So, atamaya literally, or atamayata literally means not being made of that thing. And if you want... This is about as close as Buddha's teachings comes to non-duality. This is a place of abiding. It is reckoned to be uh, an attitude we can cultivate. It occurs a couple of times in the discourses. An attitude which is rated to be higher than Upeka. It is rated to be higher than all of the jhanas. And it is an attitude which, in which we do not create a self inwardly by not identifying and outwardly, we do not create a world by reifying our sensory experience. Yeah. I find that a powerful vision. Let me read you a last verse, and then we end for tonight. Um, this is a short little discourse. It's called Atamaya Sutta. It speaks of six advantages of the perception of non-self. Practitioners, seeing six advantages, a practitioner should find it's sufficient to establish the perception of not-self in all things without exceptions. What are the six? I shall not be part of all the world. The word here is atamayo. Or I shall not be identified with all the world. Could be a translation. The second one is I-making will vanish in me. The word is ahankara. 
Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Ahankara mamankara. Yeah? This is what we call selfing in, in good English. Yeah, I making and my making. It's very, very tangible. Mine making will vanish in, from me. The fourth one is, I shall be accomplished in uncommon knowledge. In other words, I'll see colors, okay? I see unusual things and I'll see things that are out of the ordinary. My mind will not abide in consensus reality alone, okay? I will not just be reasonable. I'm actually having insights. The fifth one is, I shall well understand the conditions. And sixth, I shall understand the states arising from conditions. Let me read those again. I shall not be identified with all of the world. I-making will vanish in me. Mind-making will vanish from me. I shall be accomplished in uncommon understanding. I shall well understand conditions and the states arising from conditions. Practitioners, these six advantages, a practitioner should find it sufficient to establish the perception of non-self in all things without exception. Good. Let us sit for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's do walking practice until quarter to nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.